All right, everybody. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. There's uh, handouts somewhere, so good luck finding those. Let me uh, pray for us, and we'll get started. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for another morning, and we pray that you would grant us understanding, grant us um, just a humility before your word, and uh, grant us a love for one another. We're just reminded in your word uh, that all the gifts that your spirit gives are meant to be expressions of your love to us as a church and our love to one another. Um, So help us to always uh, live in the love you've given us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in an ironic twist, uh, we're continuing from last week's session on the case for cessationism. So that was that was good, wasn't it? That was good. Yeah. Some of you didn't get that, but that's okay. No. You'll get it later. Yeah, it's an ironic twist. We're continuing from last week's uh, session on the case for cessationism. A case, a case for cessationism. I shouldn't say the. I mean, there've been multiple different ways of approaching this. Um, So we're in a series on the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been talking about. Uh, The Spirit, uh, two weeks ago, or two sessions ago, it's been more than two weeks ago, but Doug started us in a particular piece of this discussion because we've been talking about the Spirit's work in general, but we kind of zoomed in on the Spirit giving gifts. So Doug talked about the the positive things about the fact that the Spirit gives spiritual gifts to every believer, and that is a glorious truth. We intentionally start with that and not with the case for cessationism because you— the whole point is that we're not trying to just say something negative about the spirit and spiritual gifts, right? The whole point is the spirit does give gifts and that's an incredible truth to build up the body of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to reference a couple things here. You'll just be reminded. Paul writes, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And then he says in verse 6, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so we spent time thinking about spiritual gifts are for the good of the church, to build up the body of Christ. We see that down in verse 11. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit gives gifts as he wills for the building up of the body, for the common good. So spiritual gifts by definition are not about just you individually in your walk with Jesus. Now, they are in the sense that you're called to exercise that gift. That's true, right? You're accountable to God to use the spiritual gift. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that it's such a big deal if we do not gather with God's people, right? Because it's not just about you. I mean, it it, it is. We can make a whole case for why you individually are responsible to gather with, with fellow believers to worship. But it's not just about you. You have spiritual gifts that are intended to be functioning within the body. And if you're not there, you are withholding something that the Spirit has given for the good of the body. Okay, so that's a side note. But uh, last session then, uh, I was teaching, we zoomed in on three of these spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, and then miracles and healings. I kind of lump miracles and healings together uh, to s- and showed from the scripture how we should define those gifts and how they were exempl- based on how they were done and exemplified in the scriptures. Definition is key. We can't have a fruitful discussion about these gifts if we do not define them carefully, Right? And I think fundamentally that's, the diff- that's one of the main differences between cessationism and continuationism is I think we're not defining them the exact same way. And I think the ways I defined them last time have biblical warrant, whereas I don't think the other side's the continuationist view does. Um, now, I say that being very careful to also point out, like I did last time, you can be a member of our church and not hold exactly to the way we're teaching this. But in our What We Teach document, you can, uh, I think I, yeah, I even quote that there for you, letter C under one, um, 
We teach that the sign gifts, apostle, prophet, healing, miracles, and tongues, authenticated the ministry and message of the apostles and served in the establishment of the church. We teach that God continues to demonstrate his miraculous power and ability to heal, but the sign gifts as given to the early church are not in effect today. So that is what we teach. So you just ought to expect you're going to hear that taught. Obviously, we think that's biblical, so we'd want you to think that way, right? It's not like, I, it's not like I'm just totally indifferent to what you think on that. Uh, but you can be a member and still hold a different view on that, right? Um, so, real quick, let me give you just a reminder of cessationism and continuationism. I've been using those words. Maybe that's new to you. Cessationism is the view that the gifts of prophecy, tongues, miracles, and healings were given only during the apostolic time, or at least early, very early church time, prior to the completion of the New Testament writings, um, continuationism is the view that all the gifts, including those I just mentioned, are still given to the church today. And then you've seen the, the what we teach thing. So I'm going to continue this ca- a case for cessationism this morning because we ran out of time last time. Um, and the, the way I'm going to approach this is I think there are, I think there's a sh- the strongest um, thing for each side here. You can see this on your handout. The, the strongest argument or the main issue for each side for cessationism, I think the strongest point to make is the gifts that are today labeled as, let me see, I'm going to read it from your handout. I think I did it differently here. The gifts labeled by continuationists as prophecy, tongues, and healing miracles do not match up with the biblical examples and definitions of those gifts. I think that is probably the strongest point for the cessationist side of things. Um, I think the strongest point for the continuationist side is the question, where in the New Testament does it tell us these gifts will cease? If the Spirit gives gifts, why would he stop giving these three gifts and not the others? I think that's probably the strongest. We didn't really get to that piece last time. So what I want to do is review that, really that first point, that the strongest point, I think, for cessationism. And then I'm going to continue to make the point for cessationism, but I'm also going to kind of be responding to that stronger argument from the, continue, from the continuationist side. Does that make sense? Okay, so that, that's the plan for this morning. So with those in mind, I'm going to present this case for cessationism, then answer a few questions that I think are common questions. So three different um, things, points I'm going to make under this case for cessationism. Uh, you can see them as letter A, letter B, and letter C on your handout if that helps you get the big picture of where we're going. The, the first argument is a definitional and empirical evidence argument. And this is really review from last time, but I think it is, it is uh, such a compelling part of the case that I, I want to briefly go over it again. And so that is that the gifts that the continuationists claim, um, the, these, these gifts continuing, they're not the ones we see exemplified in the New Testament, but a redefinition of those gifts. And, and this is important because um, if, if you're going to say, hey, we still have the gift of prophecy, we still have the gift of tongues, well, it needs to be the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues, right? So it, if I come along and I'm like, look, I'm a millionaire. And you're thinking what you would rightly think of when we use the term millionaire. And I'm like, no, 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 I got a million paper clips. That we're not talking about the same thing, right? So that's what, this is pretty important. So, so we need to make sure we're defining it properly. And you can't just define it however you want. You've got to have a reason to define it the way you do. That's all I'm saying. So uh, I'm going to review these real quick. Prophecy, definition I gave you last time. Prophecy is when a person spontaneously receives a revelation from God and communicates it to other people without error. And it is key to note that when I see it in the scripture, I see this is without error. 
And, I, and that is the difference. And I gave you examples last time from um, a systematic theologian uh, writing from the other side. When, when, the, when the continuationists describe what prophecy is in the New Testament, they do and they have to define it as less than un, inerrant word from God. And so I gave you that in their own words last time. I'm not putting words in their mouth. That's what they say. And they have to because why? Their prophets, the people with the gift of prophecy, do get it wrong. And so they have to, they have to put that in there. Um, and so they'll say, look, look, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to discern when the message is right and when the message is wrong. That's the gift of discernment. And what I, what I would say and what we saw it said last time is, no, the Bible says that prophet, it's not just one, like, well, so-and-so prophet sometimes gets it right, sometimes gets it wrong, you know, so we just kind of got to just, you discern whether it's a true prophet or a false prophet. And Deuteronomy is still, I think, very much the way we do that, where it says in Deuteronomy, I think it's 20, um, if they get it wrong, they're a false prophet. First uh, John 4, 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone into the world. Notice John in the New Testament is not just saying that discernment comes down to discern sometimes, you know, the message. Do they get the message right or not when they're prophesying? You have to still, in the New Testament, be able to discern false prophets, right? The role of prophet, which would mean you have the gift of prophecy. So, so that's my point. We have to somehow be able to, and, and, if, and if we say prophecy is something less than 100% accuracy, how would you determine who a false prophet is? Because you can't just say they got it wrong. They could just say, well, you know, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. You understand what I'm saying? That I think that is the case for prophecy being defined the way I just defined it here. I think that that's the way the Bible defines it. We saw in, in uh, Acts uh, when it talks about prophecy um, as being part of the inauguration of the new, king, new covenant. He's quoting Joel from the Old Testament and he talks about there's going to be this prophecy thing going on. What, well, Joel's in the Old Testament. I mean, I don't know what other form of prophecy Joel knows except for inerrant prophecy. Joel's not thinking this, that there's something different here that's going to come. And, and by quoting Joel, I think Peter's saying the exact same thing. Prophecy in the New Testament is the same as it was in the Old Covenant. Okay, tongues. When a person is enabled, I'm, I know I'm going over this fast, but we did this last time. So if you want more details, go back and listen to the last session. Um, tongues. When a person is enabled to speak a human language that he or she did not learn and does not know, in order to tell the mighty works of God to those of different languages. Um, so Acts chapter 2, um, I'm going to reference a couple things there. If you want to look at it, you're welcome to, but I'm going to go through it pretty quick. Um, as practiced today, and we saw this last time with the uh, definition provided by a continuationist theologian, uh, it's, it is not uh, always, in fact, they would say it's not even mainly known human languages that they're talking about when they talk about tongues. They would define it more as ecstatic utterances, something where your spirit is just saying things that your mind, you don't even know, and no one else can even know. It's just some noises, but it means something to you and God. There's a, it's like the spirit speaking in some language that no one knows. It's a special thing that the spirit does. Um, well, Acts chapter 2, when we first see the gift given, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance then verse 7 and they were amazed and astonished so the people listening to all this who are not uh, believers at this time they're astonished saying are not all these who are speaking Galileans in other words particular ethnicity particular language group and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language they're uttering things that are called tongues so what they're saying is coming out as something different than what the language they know. And these people are saying, we hear them speaking in our language. Clearly, it's a known 
language, human language that is communicated. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, we see a, the same thing. Um, and we dealt with some of the more questions, uh, verses in there that people have questions about, but the clear statement is in verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That's another point. The tongues is not just about you and your talking to God individually. Uh, Verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. The whole point is, it's got to be understandable. And Paul makes that point over and over again. So I, I see no reason to think tongues changes when you get to 1 Corinthians 14. Um, he, I mean, he, he says there are many different languages in the world. And in that context, he's talking about tongues. So he clearly sees it as a language. Um, healing and miracles. Uh, healing is the regular ability to enact miraculous and obvious healings of physical ailments by a word or touch. Miracles is or the gift of miracles is the ability to cast out demons or perform miracles related to natural laws um, by word or touch. So um, this is not the same thing as saying someone prays and God responds. Just to be clear, we're going to deal with that in the frequently asked questions section here in a second. Um, Intentionally, we have the word or touch aspect in there. That's what you see in the New Testament when you see someone performing a miracle. They either speak and something immediately happens or they touch and something immediately happens. It's not, I prayed, and then down the road we have some sort of healing. That is still a miracle. So I'm not saying that's not a miracle. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying that's not the gift of healing. You see, there's a difference, and it's important to note the difference. So um, one example, um, Acts chapter 3, Peter comes up to a man. He's been lame from birth. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter said, He looks at the guy, says, I have no silver or gold because the guy's begging for money. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So here we have word. Peter tells a man who's been lame from birth, get up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And notice, this isn't like he had a migraine and it went away. I I mean, migraines are terrible. So if you have migraines, I'm not saying they're not. You could pray for that. And if God gives you immediate healing, great. That's different than the gift of healing. What I'm saying is this was obvious. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a lifelong thing for this guy. And he does it immediately. And, and here's the proof, verse 8, and leaping up, so the man leaps up, he stood and began to walk, enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him obvious, clear, miraculous thing done by a spoken word and a touch and instantaneous. Those are the things we see when we see miracles in the New Testament. Um, Same thing with casting out demons. Paul in Acts chapter 16, he says, uh, there's this girl who has a demon and he said said, uh, to the spirit that was in her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out of her that very hour. So we have speaking and boom, it's a rapidly following happening. Okay, so my first point, which was mainly reviewed from last time in arguing for cessationism, is that the gifts, the continuationist claim, do not match the biblical examples and thus the biblical definition. In other words, what I'm saying is they redefine the gifts and then claim they have the gifts. That, I think that, that's the big issue. There's no warrant for this redefinition, so I think it is special pleading. It is claiming an exceptional definition with no biblical justification for redefining it. 
okay? So that's that's point number one. Point number two is is where we're getting into kind of newer territory that we didn't really cover last time. Turn to um, turn to First Corinthians thirteen first. So now we're on the back of your handout. I know I give you a lot on these handouts, but maybe it just helps you later because I know I talk fast and I say a lot. Maybe it just gives you something you can go back and look it up on your own. Um, <laughs> I heard that. Uh, theological inference. It's true though. It's true. Theological inference. Uh, that was the telling. That's right. Someone's speaking in tongues. Uh, the second argument I'm going to make is a theological inference. The, and, and that is that the roles of apostle and prophet have ceased. Thus, so here's the inference I'm making. Thus, we can conclude that at least the gift of prophecy served its purpose and is no longer given. Now, um, I, I think this is what I'm trying to do here is answer what I think is the strongest point against cessationism that the Bible does not directly say these gifts will cease. Um, but I believe, I believe that we can legitimately infer that the role of apostle and prophet served a particular purpose, and since they don't exist anymore, the gifts that went along with that don't exist anymore as well. Uh, there, in other words, I think there was a reason that the Spirit gave these gifts in the early church before the completion of Scripture, and then with that having been met, we have Scripture now, the church is established now, that's the reason he no longer gives those gifts. It's not just willy-nilly, well, I think I'm going to give this gift. I don't think I'm going to give this gift. It's back and forth. I don't think that's what's going on. Um, so 1 Corinthians 13. First, I need to address this passage. I'm going to address it briefly, even though um, it probably warrants more time. But 1 Corinthians 13, um, I need to address this because I think many people will look at this passage and say it proves that tongues have ceased. Because what I'm saying is the scriptures, the, the cases that from the continuation is, is Show me in scripture where it says they ceased. And we're going to read a verse that in a second that says tongues, they're going to cease. Okay? So a lot of, a lot of people will point to that and say, see, they, they cease. But, you know, you have uh, the, the, they will also point to this, other people point to this, and say that it actually proves prophecy continues to exist until the second coming of Christ, and it won't change. And I actually think this passage's main point is neither of those things. Uh, I think the main point is, Love is central to the exercise of spiritual gifts. Paul's rebuking them at the end of chapter 12 because they've been, they've been going on and on about wanting these gifts in like a greedy sort of fashion. They're forgetting that the Spirit gives as he wills, like we saw early in chapter 12. He gives the gifts. It's his will. It's not you. It's a gift. You can't say you, you deserve it. It's for the building up of the body. If the Spirit says you need this gift and you need this gift, who are you to go say, I have to have all the gifts? Or because I don't have that gift, I'm not as valuable as this person over here. So he's rebuking them. Uh, and, and really the main issue is you guys need to love each other. The gifts are meant to build up in love. Your problem is you're not loving each other. And he basically is saying, look, all these gifts eventually are going to cease. Love is, is going to continue into the eternal state. Think, I mean, think about it. We're not going to need prophecy in the eternal state, right? We're not, gonna, we're not even going to need mercy in the eternal state. There'll be nothing to be merciful toward. I mean, we'll need God's grace continually poured out on us, but it's not like we're sinning against each other in the eternal state, having to show mercy to one another. Um, okay, so 1 Corinthians 13, I think his point is love will last forever, the spiritual gifts will not. So stop obsessing about spiritual gifts. Just practice them, right? Use what God's given you. Don't obsess about it. So here's the, here's the passage in question. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Okay, so you, you see there's this pass away, there's this ceasing. Um, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So, um, some commentators arguing for cessationism point to this, and they say that tongues, where it says that they uh, will cease, um, they refer to some grammatical points to say that they will cease in and of themselves. That's a possible interpretation. Um, the word doesn't necessarily have to carry that meaning. So they, they make a lot out of the fact that it's in the middle, um, middle voice, right? Um, which has this idea that it's going to in and of itself, it has this kind of built-in thing. That could be the case, okay? Um, middle is, uh, the middle form in Greek is a little more complex than that, though. And so it's a little tricky. I don't think you can say this is a slam dunk. Let me put it that way. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think you can say that. I mean, I've read that. I've taught that. Okay, so I'm not, I mean, you may hold that too, and I'm not trying to like take the wind out of your sails or anything, because it, it could mean that. I, I'm just saying I don't think a continuationist is going to find that argument convincing. Um, that's all I'm saying. I think they're going to they're point to other things that may or may not be right, but I don't know how you sort that out at this point. And maybe as I grow in my knowledge, I'll get you know better understanding of that. Um, one of the main difficulties is he also, I think for, for this, for arguing that is even if you deal with tongues here, he still mentions prophecy that it will pass away when the perfect comes. And so now there's, and then we have to say, okay, well, what's the perfect? And so here you've got different people defining that in different ways. Okay. Is, is it spiritual maturity, which seems to go along with what he says, I think in verse 11, when I was a child, I reasoned like a child, right? So it could be this idea of spiritual maturity. But then if you look at verse 12, it seems to indicate perhaps we're talking about the second coming or the new creation. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Um, I am inclined to think that, that the new creation or eternal state is probably what he's referring to here. Uh, I could be wrong on that. Um, but here's the point. Uh, Tom Schreiner says it, I think, well. He says the point in this passage is that gifts would not persist in the new creation. They are not the pinnacle of biblical revelation. In other words, it's, there's something more that it's all leading to, which is the new creation. Though this passage tells us that the gifts will end when Christ returns, so we at least know that much, it doesn't require that all the gifts last until Jesus returns. And so I think um, that brings us to the question of, okay, is it still, are there other passages that might indicate that tongues or prophecy or these things will cease prior to the second coming of Christ? I guess what I'm saying is I don't think... 1 Corinthians 13 is going to be um, as easy to use in proving this as other passages are going to be. Okay? So, that's a it's a complex passage. Um, if you don't completely get that, that's fine. I don't know that I completely get it. Um, but what, what I want to say is, I think there are better passages to make the case that, it, that prophecy and other gifts have ceased. Okay? Because this passage, I think you're just going to go back and forth with people over it. Right? I'm not saying there's not one interpretation. I'm just saying it's going to, um, they're not going to like your interpretation. You're not going to like their interpretation, right? And it's a little bit harder to prove what's going on there. So turn to Ephesians 2. This is really where I was mainly going to go, but I felt we needed to at least look at 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, so what I'm trying to do here is say the roles of apostle and prophet have ceased. Thus, we conclude, can, can conclude that at least the gift of prophecy is no longer given. Um. So uh, Ephesians 2, verse 19, the first step in, in proving this is to show that there was a unique role for apostles and prophets and that that role has come to an end. Okay, so look at chapter 2, verse 19. 
Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he's talking to the church, saying, Gentiles, you're part of the church. It's not just Jews, it's Jews and Gentiles. That's what makes up the church. It's the new covenant people of God. Okay, well, look at verse 20. This church, the new covenant people, this new covenant, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temp- into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So the church has a foundation. What is the foundation? The cornerstone is Jesus, right? He is central to everything that's going to be built. But what does God give us to be the foundation that we're going to, that the church is going to be built on? The apostles and prophets, right? Um, The apostles are those who were called by Jesus. They saw the risen Christ and they were specifically given the task of laying the foundation of the church through prophetic utterance, through the written word of God, ultimately. That's what we see. Uh, Prophets are those who spoke inerrant revelation from God. I think we saw that earlier. Um, Now notice though, there's still growing uh, of the church that's gonna take place through the gifts of the spirit. That's true. What I'm concerned with, though, is what is foundational. It's the apostles and prophets. And what's central to them is revelation from God, direct revelation, prophecy, written down, authoritative words from God, okay? That's what's central. Um, How many foundations do you lay? One. If you lay more than one, you have a problem, right? Um, So you lay one foundation. Um, so we do not have apostles and prophets today. I think Ephesians two tells us that. Um, I think it's, I think Paul tells us that when he's, he basically says in uh, first Corinthians, uh, I'm, I'm the last of the apostles is essentially what he says. Uh, where's that? Verse chapter 15, verse seven, eight. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So last of all, Paul says, Jesus appears to me in terms of apostolic authority. What does that mean? Jesus isn't appearing to other people, appointing them as apostles. I think that's what it means. The role of apostle ceases, right? Um, okay, so the role of apostle ceases. Um, why does that happen? I think it's because the written word of God is given to us, right? They laid the, the foundation with the authoritative word of God. Um, Tom Schreiner, again, is helpful. He says, the apostles gave us the authoritative teaching by which the church continues to live to this day. And that is the only teaching we will need until Jesus returns. We know that new apostles won't appear since Paul specifically says he was the last apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Um, So I think there are good grounds to conclude that the gift and role of prophets and apostles has ceased. I I think that is pretty clear inference to make from what we're seeing in Ephesians 2. I want to I want to build on that though um, and say to, uh, turn to Hebrews uh, 2, Hebrews 2. Are there other gifts? So I guess what I'm saying is I think the I think when it comes to prophecy um, I think that's a pretty slam dunk argument that we we don't have prophets and apostles. So unless we're going to redefine what prophecy is there there's not around. Okay? I'm not saying there's, there's no room to debate. I'm just saying I think that's a pretty clear um, inference to make. I think it's hard to, to say we can't make that inference. Um, now, are there other gifts, though, that went along, not just prophecy? Look at Hebrews chapter 2. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. So what? So what's he referring to is the apostolic testimony. The Lord told us about this gospel, this good news, right? This new covenant. And, and it was attested to us by those um, who heard. I think that would have been eyewitnesses, right? The apostles and those closely associated with them. Um, while God also bore witness by what? Signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So here we're, we're seeing that it's attested to by these witnesses and we're seeing signs and wonders. Okay? So I think we're, we're saying, okay, now, those who are giving this authoritative message, it seems like God had also brought along these sign-type gifts to authenticate that, yes, they have this authority. Um... Certain gifts were sign gifts. In Jesus, the word sign was referred to many times to talk about certain miracles he did, that they were signs showing that he was in fact the Messiah. So I think these sign gifts, are, they're kind of functioning the same way. They're saying we are the ones Jesus sent as his official representatives to give his authoritative word. So if prophecy and apostles have ceased, so have the sign gifts that would accompany that. These are inferences, I understand that, but I think they're, I think they're pretty solid. I don't think it's without warrant here. Um, 2 Corinthians 12. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12. Sorry, I should have told you to stay, keep a hand in 2 Corinthians, but it's a good exercise. Oh, yeah, we were in first. Good point. 2 Corinthians uh, 2, actually. I said 12, but I think I meant to say 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Look at what else we see about, about the apostles who are closely associated, apostles, prophets. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11. I have been a fool... So, the, the, so in, in 2 Corinthians, they are, uh, there's these guys going around saying, look, we're apostles and we're way better than Paul, right? And so uh, Paul is addressing that issue. And here's one of the things he says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I, am I in a different passage? It is 12. Okay. So I wrote 12 up there and then I wrote, t- I wrote two down here. I'm sorry about that. Thank you guys. 12. All right. Uh, Verse 11, I hope. All right. We're going to skip down to uh, verse 12 now. Verse 12. Sorry, I read most of verse 11. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So again, you're seeing there's this thing we're referring to signs and miracles and mighty works, and and these showed the signs of a true apostle. So do you see the chain here, right? Apostles and prophets, they laid the foundation. We don't keep laying the foundation. That is gone. Further authenticated by the fact that Paul basically says, look, I'm the last apostle. Further authenticated by what we see in Hebrews 2. We're getting the word of God. Once we have the word of God, those sign gifts are no longer needed. And then we come here to 2 Corinthians 12, and we see there are these signs of a true apostle. So again, if, if we don't have the role of apostle, we do not have these sign gifts going on anymore. So to summarize, my second main argument for cessationism during the church age is in Ephesians 2, the church was established on this foundation. Therefore, the gift of prophecy, at least the gift of prophecy, this authoritative word from God, is not given anymore because the foundation is laid. Um, there are not going to be new apostles. There's no, there's no more need for further prophecy because we, we have all we need in this book and we're just waiting for some end time stuff to start happening. Right? There will be a point in the book of Revelation where we're going to have two prophets who are going to show up um, because something new is happening. We're transitioning out of the church age. 
But in the church age, we have the written word for us. So at least prophecy has clearly ceased. And I think it's, we could also say the other sign gifts have ceased. Um, I think there was a reason for those sign gifts. I think they're, they're not needed anymore. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you don't right yeah so so geography could play into our understanding of this I certainly think at least um, time frame does right that we're we're um, early church before the written word um, but yeah geography I hadn't really thought about that so that's a good good thing to consider um Okay, third argument, and we're going to go real quick on this one. I just want to bring it up because I think it is helpful. We only see limited appearances of miraculous activity, even in the Bible, and the claims we see in church history are pretty suspect. Um, this probably mainly deals with healings and miracles, but uh, we could probably also say it relates to prophecy to some degree. Um, you know, it's interesting when you read through the Bible, I think sometimes we have this idea that they're like in Old Testament Israel, it's like every day these people are just seeing miracles. Like, man, wouldn't it have been great to live back then? Like, but there, are, when you read it and you think about the historical time frame and how much time is going on, it's very limited times that you see miraculous things going on, especially directly through the hands of an individual like Moses. God specifically works through Moses to part the Red Sea, right? I mean, the Exodus is one time you see major miracles going on. But a lot of the everyday life of these Israelites, they're not seeing miracles all the time. They're certainly not seeing people walk around with the gift of miracles all the time. Although we've, we've already said there's a difference in the way the Spirit operates in the Old and New Covenant. So that, that could be part of it too. Uh, but even when you get to the New Testament, okay, there's, a, you know, there's, so there's, not a, there's certain segments in the Old Covenant. You get to the New Testament, and unsurprisingly, when the Messiah comes on the scene, miracles are abounding through his ministry. That's not surprising, Right? He, he's bringing in this, this, the, the new kingdom. He's inaugurating it. Satan is doing his worst. Demons are highly active uh, as opposing him. So there's a lot of demons being cast out. There's a lot of healing being brought in. All these things foretaste of the kingdom, right? They're, they're, they're these um, kind of inauguration of the kingdom. The king is here. Um, as you go through the, new, the, the early parts of the New Testament, in Acts, you see a lot of miracle stuff happening, but still that's like right on the heels of the ministry of Jesus, by the time you get to the end of the New Testament, Paul's last letter, we talked about this last time, but his last letter, 2 Timothy, he, in 2 Timothy 4.20, he leaves behind a traveling companion who is ill at, I think he leaves him at Malutus, but he leaves him at some city and doesn't, Paul doesn't heal him. Paul certainly was able to heal earlier in his ministry. We see him do that in the book of Acts. We see him bring a guy back from the dead, right? The, the guy who falls out of the window and dies when Paul's preaching because he goes too long. Um, Maybe the kid just stayed up too late the night before, too. He's probably like a teenager, so it really probably was the kid's fault, right? But he falls out of the window, dies, Paul revives him. So it's not that Paul wasn't able to do miraculous things in his ministry, but by the end of it, it seems like we don't see him doing that for whatever reason. Um, then when you get to church history, uh, miracles uh, basically cease, except for there are small pockets where miracles are being claimed for here and there. And it's... Um, it's interesting, D.A. Carson says this about it. Um, 
And it's interesting, when I, when I was reading D.A. Carson on this, and I was kind of skim reading him, but uh, I would not say he is hostile towards uh, continuationism. I, I mean, I might be wrong, but I was reading him, and he was, he was much more open-sounding to things. But this is what he says about the historical evidence. In each instance where these gifts were claimed, uh, the group involved was small and generally on the fringe of Christianity. Very often, the groups that did emphasize what today would be called charismatic gifts were, neither, were either heretical or quickly pushed their gifts to such extremes that their praxis, that means the practice of these gifts, proved dangerous to the church. Um, so I think, you know, you'll see that some continuationists, will, they will point to certain pockets of activity that have happened. Because cessationists, will, what we, say tend to, we tend to say is, look, it stops, you don't see it in church history. That's not completely true. You do see claims of it. But... What, I think what the continuationists fail to say, to, to point out and look carefully at is the groups where they're claiming that these things are continuing and things are going on, they generally were either almost immediately labeled as heretical, not because of their practice of gifts, but because their theology was way off on significant Christian doctrines. So where we don't even, it's, it's hard to even say, are you even a part of the church based on these beliefs? Um, or their practice, maybe their theology was not, but their practice ends up leading to things that are very problematic within the lives of their people in, in that particular place. So I think historically, it's pretty safe to argue that these gifts, at least the way they were practiced in the New Testament, you do not see evidence of that in church history. You see claims to it, but I don't think you see, I think it's at least suspect claims is what I'm saying. Um, to sum it up, Here's the three points that I made. First, it's definitional and empirical evidence. The gifts described in the New Testament are not the same gifts we see being claimed by continuationists today. Second, we should infer from the fact that the foundational role of apostles and prophets is done, that the gifts associated with those roles are no longer in play, especially given the first point that I made. If they are in play, they need to look like they looked in the Bible, and I don't see that. Number three, Third, historically in the New Testament and in church history, miraculous gifts and the gift of prophecy do not seem to continue. So let me answer a few questions that I think um, are probably common when we talk about these issues. First is, how should we engage continuationist friends and family, or perhaps even you fall into this category? Um, the first is, I, I, you don't need to go out um, in attack mode towards your friends and family on this issue, Okay. Um, we don't need to assume evil motives of our family and friends. Now, there are people that we need to label as heretical, like Benny Hinn, right? People like that with, a, with a, another gospel uh, and, and obviously evil intentions going on, um, whether he would label it as that or not. But most of your friends and family are not going to fall in that category, right? And, uh, and so we, we, need to, um, we, we need to just differentiate in, in these cases, what's going on, right? Um, I would say, though, however, we need to be very cautious if there are claims that there is new revelation. That really is the biggest issue, I think, right? I think that, that is really, if you want, because what happens is if you start claiming that there's some sort of authoritative revelation going on, that will undermine Scripture. It will, because they will eventually contradict something that's being said or give you something that's not true. And, and so it, we have to at least, we have to recognize, I guess what I'm saying is we have to triage the issue. The most important, like this, you know, someone is bleeding profusely when they come in and they're, if, if, if it's an authority of scripture issue, because that will lead to a dramatic, catastrophic spiritual blood loss and death, right? If they're, if they're off on 
their understanding of miracles. Well, if they're not, I mean, even that, you got to triage. If we're over here at the prosperity gospel, we're moving into another gospel. They're going to bleed out there too. But if it's something more like, well, you know, I prayed for someone and they were healed. I think I've got the gift of healing. I would say, I don't think that's the gift of healing. I'm not saying you didn't pray for that. I'm not saying God didn't answer that. I'm just saying, I don't see that as, I think it's unhelpful to call that the gift of healing because I don't think that's what scripture means when it says gifts of healing. Does that make sense? So you're kind of triaging the seriousness of what's going on. And um, so I would say it's, it's right and, and good at times. Now, I don't make this your conversation every time you're with them, but perhaps to genu- gently ask questions about why, why do the gifts like prophecy, miracles, and healings, why do they not seem to look like what I see in the New Testament? Right? Help me understand that. And, uh, and then have, have discussion on that. Don't get into a fist fight over it. Um, okay, um, let's see. I'm going to go on to the next one here. Do, does being a cessationist mean we don't think God does miracles and healings? No. We pray that God would do that. Uh, we praise him when he does do something. A miracle is extraordinary providence. You realize that? I mean, God sustains every single normal thing that happens um, through his providence. Extraordinary providence is when it's like, that's not normal. So we call it a miracle. It's, but it's still providence. It's just above what we ordinarily see and expect. That's what a miracle is. Um, so, um, so we just don't think the gifts are given, though. I, I, and so if, if, you're, if you're more in line with what we teach, a cessationist perspective, um, we are not, and, and I, I would even give us a warning, we need to be careful not to become anti-supernatural in our thinking, right? There can be a tendency that we have seen such abuse that we almost want to back up and say, no, no, there's nothing miraculous that ever happens because we, we, wanna, we just want to keep, we just want to, you know, line in the sand that's like very clear, And I'm saying, let's just be careful not to do that because God does heal. He does heal miraculously. Psalm 103 is true, right? Bless the Lord who heals all your diseases. That's true whether it was ordinary providence or extraordinary providence. If you recover from a cold, that was ordinary providence probably for you, unless you have some special health issues. Um, You should still thank God for that. If you pray because it looks like there is no hope, someone so-and-so is going to die and they are healed, that can be a miracle. It could be extraordinary providence, and you thank God for that. If you pray and God does not bring healing, you can give God thanks for that. That's what I'm saying, right? Um, but this is very different than saying, I have the gift of healing. There, and I, think, I still think that is a very important and helpful distinction to make. I think it's a biblical distinction to make. But, my, but for us, the warning, if you, if you hold the view I hold, the, I think the warning is let's not become anti-supernatural. Let's not, let's not live as if God doesn't do miraculous things. Let's pray for God to do miraculous things. Let's praise God when he does miraculous things. But I don't think I'm going to go, I'm not going to go around saying I've got the gift of healing because I prayed and God responded to it. I'm, I'm going to thank God for it. Um, let's see. Does God, I, I don't have this one in your hand out, but does God give the gift of miracles to cast out demons in certain areas where occult practices of demonic activity are high? I do think we're, there probably are areas of the world where this is higher through occult practices. Satan is always going to work with what resonates the most in a particular group. Whatever will keep you distracted from Jesus, if it's occult practices, the demons are going to be much more obvious in what they're doing. If it's very cold and scientific like our culture or, you know, feeling oriented, he'll just work with that. We don't need demons. We got science, right? Science, and again, is science a bad thing? No, but, but he'll use it if he needs to. Um, so, um, again, I, I think if, this, if we're going to say this has, is, is the, is the gift is there, it needs to be like what you see in the New Testament. They command the spirit to come out and the spirit comes out immediately. 
And it's not kind of hit or miss. Think about those guys in Acts who they said, look, by the, by the Jesus that Paul talks about, we command you to come out. And what do the evil spirits do? They beat the stew out of these guys, right? So I don't think those guys had the gift. You see what I'm saying? When Paul tells, tells us evil spirit to come out, it, it, it came out because he had the gift. Um, so I think it's got to fit what we see there. Uh, can we pray for that to happen? And can God still deliver someone who, and by the way, who's an unbeliever? Believers can't be possessed. You know that. We've talked about that before. But I'm, well, I'm talking about unbelievers. Can we pray that God would deliver them in, in a situation like that? Sure. Can God answer that? Sure. And should we praise him? Yes. Right? Okay, last one. Does the Spirit prompt us or lead us to do th- certain things? And if so, is that the gift of prophecy? Um, I think all of us as Christians, you, you've had things where you just, inside, you feel, I need to go talk to this person. I need to go do this or that. I'm not saying the Spirit doesn't work within our desires. In fact, I think the Spirit does work within our desires and even give us godly desires, right? Um, I think that's true. The Spirit really does indwell as people. So again, we have to be careful not to be anti-supernaturalists and live as if there's no Holy Spirit that's truly operating in his people. The Spirit is active within his people. That is true. This is different, though, than you have the gift of prophecy or you're getting, the, or, and this is where I think we get confused, the Spirit told me. And I think that is the issue. And this is where I'd say, again, be careful with your friends because you're going to have a lot of people that they're going to say this and they don't really mean the Spirit authoritatively told me something. So you don't have to jump down their throat just because they say it, right? Um, but, Given your relationship, there may be a time to correct that, to rebuke that, right, uh, in a right way. Um, we do have to be very careful to start to not talk as though we are getting authoritative and direct revelation from the Spirit. That is, that is not, at best it's not helpful, at worst it becomes dangerous because it opens up the door for, for new revelation that is going to contradict the Scripture. I mean, think about it. You have a guy who's like, hey, the Spirit told me that we should get married, right? Then the girl's like, well, the Spirit told me we shouldn't get married, I mean, what do you do now? You see what I'm saying? Now, the guy could say, you know, I've been praying about it and I, I really, I desire to marry you and, um, you know, and the Spirit, through the Word, is showing me a godly woman and, and uh, what does it talk about in Proverbs about the wonders of finding a godly wife or something, right? Um, man, the Spirit says those things and I think you fit that. Now, she might just say, I do, but not for you. I mean, I don't know, right? I don't know how that's going to go, but the point is that's very different than the Spirit told me because now, now it at least sounds like, even if this guy didn't mean it, it at least sounds like it's an authoritative direct revelation from the Spirit. And, and get, putting the best spin on it, what he really meant to say was, I, I read the Word, I'm seeing things, and I'm, I'm, I have this desire, and I think this is probably, you know, Spirit directing my steps. That, best case, that's what he's trying to say. But it's, it's, it's still unhelpful, even if that's what he meant. So I would just urge us, let's not use that, hey, the Spirit told me. And I would also urge you that if, especially if someone new comes into our church and they say the Spirit told them something, you know, be on guard and, and pay attention to what they mean. But your first conversation doesn't have to be an immediate rebuke. I mean, unless it's something that's like heretical, right? And it's very obvious. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm saying there's got to be grace and love in the way we deal with people, Right? But truth is there. Truth in love. Both those things are, are there, and it just takes wisdom. How do we work the details of that out in each situation? Okay, so we covered a lot. Uh, I, uh, I hope it was somewhat helpful, and um, I'll go ahead and pray for us. If you still have questions, um, send those in, and uh, Doug will answer those next week. Let me pray. <laughs> God, we thank you for this time. Um, I know we, we covered a lot, God, but we want to we wanna honor you. We want to honor your Spirit's work. We don't want to denigrate his work. We don't want to ignore that he is um, working in your people. In fact, we want to glory in 
the fact that you have given us your spirit, you have made us your dwelling place, that you have given us spiritual gifts, um, that you answer our prayers in terms of bringing healing, that you even remove demons through um, in, in these areas where they are very active. We praise you and thank you. We want to give you all the glory for those things. We also want to be discerning. We don't want to be led astray into those who would claim any sort of false authoritative word from you. We want to cling to the once for all delivered to the saints truth that we find in the written word. And we want to live uh, in light of, of the authority of your word. And so we pray that you'd help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.